Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. In the autumn of 1871, Alexis Romanov, the fourth son of Tsar Alexander II, set off for a whirlwind trip around the United States. It was a major milestone in U.S.-Russia relations, but the tour also served Alexander II's efforts to get his son to forget a scandalous romance. Alexis's American tour also allowed Americans to examine themselves in the wake of the Civil War and demonstrate aspects of American modernity. The American press enthusiastically followed Alexis, covering his every move, his every dinner, and his every dance, not unlike paparazzi today. Crowds gathered to get a glimpse of this exotic royal celebrity. Alexis's trip also posed questions at the center of American identity, the irony that so many in a republic were falling over to welcome the son of an autocrat, and debates about what was quintessentially American to show the young prince. Here's Lee Farrow with a deep dive into Alexis's American tour. Lee Farrow is a distinguished teaching professor of history an associate dean in the School of Liberal Arts at Auburn University, Montgomery. She's the author of several books on U.S.-Russia relations, including Alexis in America, A Russian Grand Duke's Tour, 1871-72, Seward's Folly, A New Look at the Alaskan Purchase, and an annotated edition of Louise Bryant's Six Red Months in Russia. Here's Lee Farrow. So, um, what is it, like six years ago now, 2014, I think it was, you published this book, Alexei in America, on the Grand Duke Alexei's tour of the United States in 1871-72. And, you know, when I first discovered your book and this story, I was totally fascinated because I had never heard of it. And I would imagine it's unknown to most people in our, you know, memory conceptualization of U.S.-Russia relations. So what what got you interested in, in this trip of his? So um, I went to graduate school at Tulane University. And while I was a graduate student there, I worked in the special collections of the library. And Tulane University has a Mardi Gras collection, not surprisingly, in their library. And it was while I was working there as a graduate student and, and finishing up my dissertation that a friend of mine who worked in the Mardi Gras collection said, you know, did you know that there was this connection between Russia and Mardi Gras? And I had lived in Louisiana my entire life, but I had experienced Mardi Gras as a native. So I had gone to lots of parades and done those kinds of things, but I hadn't really ever read anything about it. And so I started looking into this and sure enough, there was this connection. And the connection was that Grand Duke Alexis had visited 
New Orleans in 1872 for the first daytime Mardi Gras celebration. And the popular literature on Mardi Gras uh, in various places credited him with the organization of Mardi Gras or the colors that were selected to represent Mardi Gras or even the theme song of the one of the oldest Mardi Gras organizations, the Crew of Racks. And so when I read about this, I thought that it was such an interesting story that I would kind of tuck it away and and look into it later. And so as I was completing my dissertation and thinking about what my next book project would be, I started to look into this and I discovered that no one had written about this and that the Grand Duke's visit was far more than just a trip to New Orleans, but that he, he had traveled throughout the United States over a three-month period. And during that time, he had met some of the most famous people in the United States at the time and had visited some truly amazing sites. And so I realized pretty pretty quickly that that should be my next book project. It definitely falls into that, I mean, just based on the whole Mardi Gras connection, but other things along with this trip, it, it, it certainly brings up a lot of the, you know, I don't know, it's just, it's just kind of a, in some ways, I guess, a quirky, fascinating story. Um, so just to, to kind of start getting into this trip of his, um, who was Grand Duke Alexis? So Grand Duke Alexis was the fourth son of Tsar Alexander II. And as such, he was, um, you know, he was never intended to, or no one ever imagined that he would be heir to the throne. So he was trained to be uh, in the Russian Navy. Um, He was born in 1850. And he, uh, you know, he had just kind of a normal life. Uh, The letters between him and his father are kind of funny. Uh, When he's young, he gets, he gets scolded a lot for not being a very good student. Um, so, um, there's nothing spectacular about him in his youth, but when he is about, uh, 19 years old, he falls in love with this woman who is of noble blood, but not of royal blood. She's actually the daughter of, uh, Russia's famous poet Zhukovsky. And, um, and this is a, this is a love affair, which uh, becomes quite serious. And, um, at the time that, Alexis is sent to the United States. Uh, this woman, Alexandra Zhukovsky, is actually pregnant with his child. And what, in terms of it, because he seems like also a bit of a, and and I think this comes across more later in his life, but he seems kind of a, a partier and a and a playboy as such. Um, what was his? What was you know? What is the um, historical record kind of? How do they? How does how does the historical record evaluate him? It, honestly, not very well. I mean, he, he, in later life, yes. I mean, he, and, you know, I, I guess we're kind of jumping to the end of the story here, but he, he never was able to marry Zhukovskaya. They, she had his son and she ended up marrying someone else. And he returned to Russia eventually after his trip to the United States. He never did marry. He had a reputation for being a ladies' man. Uh, they joked that, you know, people in Russia joked that every time he had a new, girlfriends, for lack of a better term, um, that, you know, that was costing the Russian Navy a ship because by that point he was actually uh, the uh, commander of the, the admiral of the Russian fleet uh, because he spent such lavish sums on these women. He bought, you know, jewelry from uh, the most exquisite jewelers in Europe and even the United States. And so um, so he, he doesn't have a great reputation. He was in charge of the Russian Navy at the time of the Russo-Japanese War and of course, that was a horrific loss for Russia. And so he resigned from that position 
at the end of the war and then retreated to Paris where he spent the rest of his life and died at age 58 uh, in 1908. So history has not remembered him very well, but I think that this, the story of his, tr- in, the, in the story of his trip, there is, uh, there's a lot more to um, like about him and enjoy. You know, one of the things I found interesting is that um, the United States government, or at least people in the United States government are pretty much asking for a visit from some member of the royal family in the, uh, you know, around the, at the end of the Civil War. Um, So why did he come to the United States? Well, it's pretty clear that the reason Alexander II chose Alexis is because of this love affair. Because as you, as you said, there, there had been invitations from the United States. And of course, there were older brothers, even, you know, even if Alexander had not wanted to send his eldest also named Alexander, um, he could have sent one of the other brothers. But um, it's clear that at this point, the decision was that they needed to get Alexis away from this woman. And the letters that Alexis exchanges with his uh, family during this trip to the United States and it, it re- and after really demonstrates that, that Alexis was really profoundly in love with this woman and he wanted to marry her, which, of course, as you know, would have been entirely unacceptable. He could have kept her as a lover and married someone of royal blood uh, so that he fulfilled his duty. But he did not want to do that. He actually wanted to marry her and and throw, you know, tradition uh, to the side. And his parents simply would not allow him to do that. And so they 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 needed to get him away from her. <laughs> That's kind of a, a, an amazing way to uh, to get him away from her. So, I mean, what did did they ex, did they expect that he would just kind of forget about her, or what was the the logic? And 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 you know, as you point out too, it also has this double role. Um, he's not just going there to you know push him away from this woman. It's also a very important state visit. Yeah, absolutely. So no, I so I think they did actually think that, you know, distance was going to was going to do the trick and and get him away from her and then he would forget about her. But as I said, like the letters between them are actually really gut wrenching. And I, I, I tell my students about these letters when I teach about this and, you know, that the letters sound like any letters that you would expect between a 20 year old and his parents, where he's saying, like, please, I love this woman. I have an obligation to her. She's carrying my child. And his parents are saying, you know, stop it. We're not talking about this anymore. Why are you torturing your mother? You know, this kind of stuff. Um, so they clearly thought that, you know, he needed to be away and then he would uh, forget. And in fact, they extended his visit when it became clear while he was in the United States that he was not letting go of her. They extended his travels and he did not return to Russia for almost two years. So they have, they did a good job of keeping him away from her. But as you pointed out, the you know, the reason Russia wanted to send someone um, to the United States to, in response to these invitations is because Russia and the United States had this very good relationship and had had one for quite a while. But of course, both countries had just gone through some pretty significant changes. The United States, had, of course, had just concluded the Civil War and was sort of seeking to redefine itself as a, as a new nation that was unified and had come through a, a pretty challenging period. And Russia was in the process of going through some significant reforms as well and had just liberated its serfs. So it was a good time for these two countries to redefine their relationship and cement that relationship. And so sending the son of the czar to the United States for a visit seemed like a very good way to do that. And both countries interpreted that way. It's clear from what was written in 
um, official documents and in newspapers that both countries interpreted this as a goodwill visit, as a, a visit that was designed to cement that relationship between the two countries. And what was the the impression of, say, the Russian Empire and the Tsar in the United States um, at the time? I mean, what did people know and what did people think? Not a lot, really, because, of course, this is before we have any kind of Russian studies programs in the United States. There, there are only a very few people at this point who have any kind of experience with Russia. Um, one thing that amazed me in going through the, the sources, um, looking at newspapers from that period, is how much international news was being published in 1871. Uh, so there, there were smatterings of information coming from, you know, through the press to those who were reading the papers about Russia, uh, but not, not a lot. So there, and there weren't a lot of Russians living in the United States at this point either. So the, the overall image of Russia was one of, you know, a nation that had, of course, a czar's system, but that had come to our aid. And when I say our, I mean the North, because, um, that's that's who, of course, you know, defined the the uh, the narrative after the Civil War um, had come to our aid during the Civil War. So during the Civil War in 1863, Russia had sent a fleet to visit the United States, and this was viewed by many in the United States as being a sign of support for the for the North. Um, and so this was remembered. And in the wake of the Civil War, when Alexis came to visit five years later or six years later. Um, this was repeated over and over again, that Russia came to our aid in our time of need. Although Russia didn't do anything in terms of military aid, just the visit signified Russia's support for the Union. But nevertheless, despite the the lack of, you know, kind of knowledge about Russia, his visit was widely covered in the press. He he was greeted with, you know, by onlookers hoping to get a glimpse of, of, of this, you know, figure of royalty. Um, what were some of the uh, the reactions to the idea of him coming and then his his travels around the U.S.? The the reactions were varied, and and again, this was one of the most fascinating things. I think once I once I dove into this research, I found so many more things to uh, enjoy and and marvel at than I that I even imagined when I began. So there were there were lots of arguments uh, about the coming visit. So there were people who were questioning who would pay for this. Um, you know, so there were debates in cities about who would foot the bill for Alexis's stay and the various festivities that would go along with that. And in some places it even delayed the process of inviting him because people were arguing about who would foot the bill. And so in, in most cities, it was the wealthiest people who came forward and volunteered to foot the bill, um, to maybe loan their carriages and other things like that. And in many big cities where they had these lavish balls and dinners, they sold tickets and subscriptions, which helped to pay for it. Um, but aside from the, the cost of the visit and the concerns about who would foot the bill, there were also more sort of philosophical debates about this. So some people raised the, the obvious uh, contradiction in, in a nation that was defined by democracy and being a republic falling all over itself to welcome and and celebrate the heir to a royal family and um, and so you know some people saw that to be a, some hypocrisy and so there were there were discussions about that um, in in Milwaukee the German citizens there the people a group of people who had fled uh, 
Prussia to come to the United States and get away from it, what they perceived to be an oppressive monarchy were very upset by the coming Grand Duke's visit because they were they saw this as a betrayal of the principles which they were they valued that they that they had come to the United States to be a part of. So it was really interesting to see some of the conversations that took place about this. Yeah, and you also point out, of course, the the Polish immigrants and the fact that you know Poland had just rebelled, uh, you know, less than a decade before. Uh, can you speak about that a, a bit as well? Yeah, so that was very interesting as well. So, of course, Poland had had a you know a, a long history of conflict with with the Russian Empire, and Polish immigrants in the United States were many of them were very outspoken uh, about their dismay that the United States was fawning over this or planning to fawn over this member of the Russian royal family. And in fact, in New York City, there was a strong fear that Polish immigrants were going to try and assassinate him. And the Russian minister here in the United States, whose name, whose name was Konstantin Katakazi, he actually was informed of this plot. He contacted Secretary of State Hamilton Fish they investigated it. They hired Pinkerton's detective agency to investigate it. Ultimately, they they could not ever determine the degree to which this plot was um, organized and, and likely to ha- occur. Um, but they did uncover evidence of people having spoken about this and they had names and places. And so ultimately, they hired agents to travel with him to protect him. But it's a you know, it's a significant, it, it's an interesting moment that, to realize that some foreign nationals were more upset about the idea of betraying uh, American principles than Americans were. Um, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of criticism of American elites, especially in the Northeast, who were perceived to be, you know, almost disgusting in their, in their fawning and their toadyism over a member of a royal family. So what did these uh these you know local elites hope to get out of this visit? Was it just kind of I mean what we would say nowadays a photo op opportunity or, or did they have other motives? I think it was mostly just that kind of photo op photo op opportunity as you said because you know there there were certainly moments during his trip where Alexis was um you know approached with an idea for example like maybe maybe Russia would like to buy this or you know but that really wasn't that certainly wasn't the motive of those elites who were scrambling to get a seat next to him at the theater or at the dinner. They just wanted the, you know, that brush with fame and celebrity. And many people went to extreme lengths to try and get that. That's that's actually one of the interesting things that you you note about this moment and, and what it represents in the grand scheme of, say, American modernity. And the issue was celebrity uh, is one of them. Like here is this guy who comes from this, you know, exotic place and people are scrambling to get a glimpse. He's part of royalty in America, despite it's, you know, throwing off the yoke of monarchy with the American Revolution. It continues to have this fascination with with royalty. Uh, talk about this issue of celebrity and how this trip or or Alexis represents that to you. Well, it's it's very interesting. When I was writing the book, a colleague of mine gave me an article about America's fascination with Princess Diana. And I thought, you know, it's it's really true that despite the fact that, you know, the United States has has built itself upon the idea of democracy and and leaving monarchy behind, we are 
incredibly fascinated, and I say we, that's not not me, I'm not, but people are incredibly fascinated with royalty here in the United States. And every time, you know, now that Diana's sons are both married, right, there are people from the United States who flew to England to be there for those weddings um, and people who collect memorabilia associated with the British royal family. And so it's interesting to me that we can see that when Alexis came to visit. Uh, there were some embarrassing displays where people were you know, waiting in his hotel, trying to get a glimpse of him. Um, it, it was it was reported that the sheets that he slept on were then, you know, cut up into pieces and sold to people. Um, that at dinners, people after the dinner, there were reports of people rushing in to, you know, grab the stuff off his plate, to eat the stuff off his plate. I mean, it's just, you know, some of the things were ludicrous with people following him around. And, um, and it's, you know, this kind of display that you think would not have occurred in the 19th century. And yet it did. Um, and of course, I, you know, as, as you indicated, everywhere he went, there were huge crowds to see him. And it, even along the rail lines, in places where he had no intention of stopping, there were crowds out to see him, to get a glimpse of him. And he he was usually very gracious and, you know, stepped out in the back of the train car and waved. But, you know, people, there were, there were stories of people getting hurt, um, people falling off of roofs, people getting, you know, trampled. I mean, not huge numbers of people, but, you know, it was it was the kind of craze that you imagine with, you know, celebrity following today. And um, and it happened, one of the things that was unique about his visit compared to some other, you know, sort of celebrities who came earlier, like the Marquis de Lafayette, is he covered so much territory. So the fact that he went from New York all the way out to Denver, for example, he covered a lot of territory. That meant that a lot of people could see him. A lot of people could be at that train depot as he as he went by, or when he was, you know, he arrived in a city, and there were parades in all of the major cities. And so, although the there were there were accusations of elitism, because in the major cities where there were balls and fancy events, the commoner could never get in. Along the way, at these parades and train depots and places like that, the average person could see Alexis and they could follow his every move by reading the newspapers. Right. Yeah. And and I have to say what I, I found kind of interesting too, uh, moments of, of resentment if you didn't get a glimpse of him or he skipped one of the towns that it was projected he was going to go through. Uh, but talk about this issue of the newspaper because this is really important too. Uh, you know, the fact that the celebrity aspect is due to the to the to the coverage in the American media at the time. Uh, talk about the this role of the media and and did it open up to issues that we would see today, like the tabloid nature of the coverage? Yeah, I think there's a good point to be made there. The the newspapers followed him and reported on his every move. So they literally reported on what he ate, what he drank, who he danced with. I mean, every single move. And people followed this and people were very interested in this. And the, and the press would make these sort of snarky comments in the morning. If he looked a little, you know, puffy, they would say maybe he ate too much or drank too much last night, you know. Um, but people were fascinated by this reporting. But there was a lot of exaggerated reporting as well. And, and of course, there were occasionally mistakes made. Um, so there were, the press made a lot of his interactions with women there was a lot of in, intimating that he was here to find a wife, which of course could far have been farther 
could not have been farther from the truth. Um, you know, his letters indicate that he was still passionately in love with Alexandra. And of course, he was a young man, so he put on a good face and I'm sure he could admire, a, you know, a pretty woman. And he danced and did all the things he was supposed to do. But his letters show that he was absolutely miserably, miserably pining for her. But the press made everything out to seem as though he was a ladies man. So he gave a lot of lavish gifts. And of course, not surprisingly, a lot of those went to women, female performers here in the United States. And um, the press reported on those widely. The press made a lot of comments, which were typical of the time, you know, sort of sexist comments about like, oh, the ladies are like this. And, you know, fathers are spending a lot of money on Grand Duke Alexis's visit because their daughters want to be dolled up to, to meet him, you know, that sort of thing. Do you have any indication of, of how, because the impression I get from reading the book is that he just sounds exhausted, Right. Because he's going on these long train trips and then he's being shuttled from one ball to another ball to a parade to whatever. Do you have any sense of how he felt about, you know, the trip itself and and the, the grueling? Well, at least it seems to me the grueling nature of it. Yeah. You know, he did comment, you know, a couple of times. And I mean, unfortunately, he wrote very little. Let me start by saying that about his trip in the United States. Frustratingly, you know, the Romanovs were known for writing diaries and I could never find a diary for this period. So I did find some other writings um, of his from before and after, but I could never find an account of this. And every now and then on the internet, someone will pop up and say that there's a diary that exists and it turns out to be incorrect. And I've traced some of those leads, but he did write some letters and he did, you know, make comments about his trips later, his trip later. And he, he had a good time in the United States and he did enjoy himself um, but it was exhausting. He complained about having to kind of fake it. Um, he complained to his brother that he has to kind of like smile, you know, smile and fake it because he's really sad. He complained about being stared at. Uh, it, it, he said that people looked at him like he was an orangutan in a zoo. Um, so, you know, he, he does complain about the, you know, the rigor of the trip and, and the fact that, you know, he's, he's sad and he's having to put on this good face and pretend like he's always having a good time. And the press occasionally commented on that, although it's hard to know if they were making this up or if they were truly observing, um, you know, a, a look of fatigue in him, because sometimes they said things like, you know, he looked a little uninterested. And of course he was dragged to all sorts of things like performances of children singing and, you know, things that, you know, might be amusing if you weren't on a three month slog of these things, you know, but, uh, some of the things that he had to go to probably were very boring. And especially, you know, given that, that rigorous schedule would have just been wearisome and, and he probably didn't enjoy himself for some of those things. Now, the, one of the high points of the trip, and and clearly, I, I would I think if I remember correctly, one of his favorite moments was this infamous buffalo hunt with uh, George Custer and Buffalo Bill in Nebraska. Um, talk about this leg of the trip. Yeah, so this by far is the part that most people uh, know something about, and it was this really. Um, just memorable kind of moment in the trip because the, here, here he is interacting with some of the most famous and colorful figures of the period. 
Um, and the stories about it, of course, are wildly exaggerated. Buffalo Bill wrote repeated accounts of this, and every account got more and more exaggerated. So it's kind of hard to know exactly what happened. But there was a reporter there whose whose version of events is a little tamer than what Buffalo Bill reports. But you know, they have a great time. They they set up these lavish tents. There's a giant, you know, uh, meal tent and there are, you know, the, the Grand Duke's tent is it's modest by, you know, modern comparison, but it, you know, but it's a nice tent and they've got all these people out there and they go buffalo hunting. And, you know, every time the Grand Duke shoots a buffalo, there's all of the celebration and champagne bottles are opened. And the others, you know, Buffalo Bill comments that we were really rooting for him to shoot more buffalo because the champagne flowed every time he did. And it just sounds like it was this amazing, fun time. Um, but in addition to that, there, you know, there was this interesting cultural element as well, because the Grand Duke had expressed interest in seeing, you know, of course, what were then called Indians, American Indians. And so these uh, Native Americans were um, contacted beforehand in advance and brought out there to perform for the Grand Duke. So they, you know, they did some ceremonial dancing and they um, they showed him how they hunted buffalo with a- bow and arrows. And um, and so it's got this very interesting element of that, um, you know, Russia's interest in, you know, the quote unquote, the American native. Do we have do you have any impression of of, you know, not just his views, of course, but maybe some others in his entourage about this encounter with uh, Native Americans? And did they make comparisons to, you know, others in, in the Russian Empire? Um, you know, they. I think the closest comparison I, you know, that anyone made was um, to the Cossacks. Um, you know, again, the sort of like the quote unquote wild people living on the frontier. You know, who 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 can't be tamed. Um, but again, Alexis just didn't write very much about his impressions, so there 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 just isn't much there. So, what are some of the other memorable moments of his journey around the United States? So I, he, he visited um, Niagara Falls, which is, you know, kind of amazing. He visited Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Uh, and um, let me see. Oh, he went to Chicago right after the Great Fire. So again, what, the friend who put me onto this story in the first place when I was at Tulane referred to him as a Russian Forrest Gump when I started uh, when I started uncovering all these things that he did. And, and it's such an accurate de- depiction of him because the the you know the Chicago fire happened in October and so Alexis was there like just a, about six weeks later he arrived in the United States and so he was visiting uh, he was actually visiting Chicago on New Year's so he was there shortly after the fire when the city was still absolutely destroyed and um, and those Chicago officials could have decided it wasn't a good idea to try and host him. They decided to do the op. They decided the opposite. They thought we need to host him. We need to demonstrate to the rest of the country that Chicago will be, will rebuild and will be a, will be better than before. And so they managed to throw together a welcome for him and took him on a tour of the burn district. Um, So that, that's a really amazing part of the story as well. He met all sorts of famous people. He met Samuel Morse. He met the, painter Albert Bierstadt. He met uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, it's it, just the name of the list of people he met during this trip is 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 enormous. And the majority of the names are, are people that, you know, the average person would recognize, the average educated person would recognize. So. And, and what about his trips to the American South? I mean, it being, you know, you know, a couple of five or six years after the end of the Civil War, did he, was his his time in the South different 
than say in in the reception of him than say in the northern cities? Well, so here's what's interesting. Um, there were discussions of him going to places like Charleston, Savannah, Atlanta. But ultimately, they had to abandon those ideas because the rail lines were just, un, you know, had been destroyed. And the, the situation there was just still too damaged for him to try and travel there. So instead, he did travel to Kentucky and then he went to um, Memphis, Tennessee, and then he took a riverboat down to New Orleans. And in the South, his reception was, I would say, roughly the same as in the North, although the newspapers in the South projected before his arrival that they would do a better job of showing him what like genuine American hospitality is. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of criticism of the, the Northeasterners as being these snobs, you know, these, these lilies, I I forget it was the exact words they use, but you know, like these lilies of the Valley who toil not something like that. Um, And so they believed that they were going to give him a better view of what uh, the average American was like. But of course, in the South, they still had the fancy balls and things like that as well. But he did see some very different things in the South. So he met Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy, which I thought was very interesting. Um, And his his, the 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 man who accompanied Alexis along this visit, whose name was Admiral Posset, who is a uh, had been sort of his governor, his guardian since he was a child. He actually commented on Jefferson Davis that it was, that Jefferson Davis was, you know, a nice guy, and 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 you could easily forget that he had been in charge of this bad thing, the the Confederacy. So I thought that was, you know, an, an interesting commentary. But Alexis had a great time in the South, um, but um, but he didn't get to see some of the, you know, the the worst damage that had occurred as a result of the war. The one thing that he he commented on is that Southerners reminded him very much of Russian nobles. The, you know, the landed nobility. And what about African-Americans? He did meet a, a few African-Americans, um, free ones, obviously, because this is after the end of the war. Um, and uh, and but they were, you know, it was a very um, uh, these were very sort of scheduled kinds of visits. So they were very uh, controlled. Um, so, you know, he 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 met a painter um but it's not like he went out into the countryside and and met like you know poor black farmers or anything like that so his his contact with black americans was pretty limited and in fact in a couple of cities this um this became an issue in the newspapers as there were accusations of racism because some wealthy black citizens um politicians and business people were denied access to the fancy balls and dinners and and by all rights, they should have been able to get into these things because they had the money um, like other people did. But of course, you know, they were not they were not permitted to. Um, now, this is one of the the things you you know repeatedly that his trip represents. And that is it was a, it, it served as a mirror for Americans to examine themselves. Can you what do you mean by that? And, and could you elaborate? Yeah. So one of the things that is very interesting about his visit is that as Americans were debating, you know, how to host him, how to celebrate him, who should be invited, um, what should what types of entertainments he should be uh, offered. It, they they began to debate things about themselves. So the the fact that they were fawning all over someone from uh, a, a royal family led them to 
question their own identity and what did this mean for them if they if they had such strong adherence to the principle of democracy or the principle of a republic then why were they behaving this way when it came to you know who would get to meet the grand duke it raised questions of elitism and classism uh, that only the wealthy citizens were getting close access to him and the you know the poorer citizens didn't have a chance to get close to him uh, other issues that were raised were, you know, things like I just said, racism, you know, so you had in a couple of cities there were there were wealthy, prominent black citizens who, by all rights, should have been included in some of these events and they weren't. Um, and so that, you know, that raised the question of racism after the end of the Civil War. Even animal rights came into play. So uh, this is and I thought that was interesting. You know, this is right after the the ASPCA was founded. And um, and so the some of the activities that the Grand Duke participated in, including a, a pigeon shoot and the buffalo hunt, became fodder for discussion about animal rights. And, you know, the press, you know, the guy who founded the Henry Berg, who founded the ASPA, ASPCA, was mocked uh, by the press repeatedly uh, for his defense of animals. And um, but the they but they used Alexis's trip as a way of doing that. So they would sort of jokingly say like, oh, Henry Berg would be very upset today because Grand Duke Alexis went shooting pigeons. You know, I mean, they, they mocked him, but used the Grand Duke Alexis's trip. And, and I, I just, you know, one of the things that I discovered was just how, how the newspapers and, and advertisers used Alexis's trip for various, um, goals. So, you know, one of the funniest things I discovered were all these really ridiculous ads, advertisements in the newspaper that used Alexis's name and his visit as a way of selling products. So they would say things like, Alexis looked at the, you know, this, the Singer sewing machine at this place and, and decided he wants to buy 10 of them. You should come and get them too. You know, and just all of these like silly ads, you know, this is the champagne that was served at the Alexis ball and you can buy it at so-and-so store. Um, and it, it, it was interesting because it was the first I discovered in doing my research that this was like the first one of the first occasions where advertising used a, a particular person or event as a way of selling things. Was there any discussion or debate around his itinerary in the sense of, you know, what do you show this guy from faraway Russia that is quintessentially American? Not in that, not in that sense. So the, so the way his itinerary was planned is initially the Russian minister Katakazi sent a, a suggested itinerary to itinerary to Russia and that, and they reviewed that and, and made suggestions. And, um, but once he got here, so initially there had actually been plans to take him all the way to San Francisco. And there had been discussions of taking him down to the South. But then once he got here, his trip sort of um, took a more free-flowing style. So they, he responded to invitations along the way. So there were, while he would be in one city, he would receive invitations from another city. And then uh, he and the Admiral would decide whether or not they wanted to go to that next city. So his 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 trip became a little more organic at that point. And, and in fact, there had initially been a, an invitation to him and a discussion at the very beginning of his trip about going on a Buffalo hunt. And initially uh, it had been said that he couldn't, he didn't have the time. So they had, they had rejected that invitation initially, but then they, the, you know, American government persisted and he changed his mind, decided to go in the Buffalo hunt. 
Um, so there weren't any discussions, you know, on large discussions about like what represents America. Now in each individual city, there were lots and lots of debates about what things they should show him. And they always, you know, sort of came down to like, what are the things that we have to show off? Like, what are the things that we can highlight? And so in some cases that was industry. So in Chicago or, or, um, yes, was it in Chicago? I think they showed him a, yes, Chicago, they showed, showed him a pork packing plant you know, and in other places, they showed him a prison that they were particularly proud of or a school that they were particularly proud of. So, you know, they tried to highlight the things in their city that they thought would be interesting and impressive for him. Now, you know, as you said, he he didn't leave much of a, a record in terms of his impressions of, of his, his trip in America in general. But what about others in his entourage? What did they walk away? Like, what is the impression that these Russians walked away with of America? So again, they didn't write very much about it either, but there was, um, but I did run across an account by uh, one of the sailors who was on the, it was in the Russian fleet and he commented about how expensive everything was. Um, Alexis did comment that, um, of course I said, you know, he, he compared the Southern Southerners to Russian nobility. He said that women here were very independent and had their own mind uh, much more than Russian women. He commented on um, the fact that we were much more secular than uh, than Russia overall. Um, I'm trying to think what other sort of impressions there. Were, like I said, there really were not a lot of things written, unfortunately. So it's kind of hard to know. What about the was there coverage on the Russian side? There was, but it was largely copied from American papers. So you, some of the, I mean, some of the Russian press repeated in translation stories that were written in American papers about following the Grand Duke's steps. Now there were there were small bits um, that were that were reported on where they were reflecting on how they perceived he was being received. Uh, so there are, there are comments in the papers that you know Alexis is being well received and he's being you know given a lot of you know. Uh, parades and celebrations and that sort of thing. But the actual like reporting on the day-to-day stuff really was mostly copied from American sources. And in fact, a couple of these, uh, there's a Russian illustrated paper that had these beautiful black and white engravings that were done. And they, they are almost identical. At first I thought it was the identical copy of the one that I'd seen in an American paper. And I couldn't figure out how in the world they'd done that. And then when I compared the two and looked very closely it's a hand done copy of the the one from the American paper. It's not it's not like somehow they got a copy over there and I don't even know what how they would do that back then. But you know what I'm saying? Like somebody actually hand drew a version of what was in an American paper because it has a different signature and it's very close, but it's not the same. And, and finally, um, you know, 2021 will be the 100th. Uh, 150th anniversary of uh, Alexis's famous American tour. What was the legacy of this this trip, and and what would you say it's important for us to remember it? So, first of all, I want to say that you know, although it it you know in modern times, right, the visit has not been remembered by many people. Along the way, uh, in the years after his visit, there were a number of occasions when his visit was recalled and and commemorated in some way. So, I I dedicate a chapter to this. I think you know where I talk about all of these. Uh, ways in which the visit was commemorated, um, beginning with, you know, he, 
when people started dying who had been a part of his visit, it was noted in the obituaries that they had been in the receiving party of the Grand Duke or something like that. Or when women got married, it might be noted that they had danced with the Grand Duke um, in their wedding announcements, which is very funny to me. Um, And then later there were commemorative dinners and commemorative balls and things like that. And eventually a Mardi Gras organization um, called the Crew of Alexis was formed in remembrance of his visit. And that, that organization actually still exists today. Um, So there were lots of ways in which his visit was remembered over the years, but sporadically and in very local ways. Um, So there have been places where dinners have occurred even within the last 10 years, but it's not the kind of thing that, you know, is, is known on a national scale. I think as the, as the anniversary approaches, one of the things that we can draw from this story, one of the lessons that we can draw from this story is just that Russia and the United States have always had a very complicated relationship. Uh, And I I often describe it to my students as a love-hate relationship. We, We have had a, Americans have had a fascination with Russia for a very long time, even during the Soviet, early Soviet period, during the 1930s, you know, when we, when, and later in the Cold War, you know, we, we were, fascinated with Russian art, Fabergé eggs, Russian literature. There's there's a huge number of people in the United States who are absolutely fascinated with the Romanov family. Uh, I belong to a couple of Facebook groups because of my book. And there are people out there who are absolutely bonkers over the Romanov family. And to this day, you know, they, I mean, they, they are constantly posting photographs and talking about the Romanov family uh, as though it were our royal family. And so, it's, it's very interesting. We've always had this very kind of tangled relationship with Russia. And I think even now in the, you know, in 2020, our relationship with Russia is very odd. There are, there are, there are parts of our relationship with Russia that are very tense. And then on the other hand, there are some weirdly friendly moments with Russia as well. And, uh, and that's, you know, and that's at the official level on, on the personal level or the, you know, down the level of citizenry, you know, I've always found that Russians have been very, accepting of Americans. I've encountered very little hostility whenever I've been to Russia. And usually whenever I discuss things like this with Russians, you know, they say like, you know, people are people. And, and you know, the the people of Russia have no reason to dislike the Americans, right? The people of America, it's the governments that do all this stuff that causes problems. And so I, you know, and I feel like that's what we see in Alexis's visit as well, that, you know, while this was something that was organized by two governments, when you get down to it, it was the people who were really uh, invested in this trip, the people who made the effort to celebrate Alexis, the people who came out in droves to try and see him. And um, and sure, it was because he was a member of a royal family. But I also think that 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 sort of um, interest in Russia by the average American person persists even today. That was Lee Farrow. Lee Farrow is a distinguished teaching professor of history and associate dean in the School of Liberal Arts at Auburn University, Montgomery. She's the author of several books on U.S.-Russia relations, including Alexis in America, A Russian Grand Duke's Tour, 1871-72, Seward's Folly, A New Look at the Alaska Purchase, and an annotated edition of Louise Bryant's Six Red Months in Russia. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. 
If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Thank you.